Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. W-A-B-E in Atlanta. I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Thank you for listening as together we continue to navigate daily life during quarantine. Practicing meditation is considered especially effective during this time, as we'll hear later in the hour. If warmer weather has you cooking outdoors now, Mark Bittman has some great tips in his book, How to Grill Everything. And we'll celebrate Cinco de Mayo with a mariachi band. First, COVID-19 has had an impact on every aspect of life, above all life itself. The way we conduct our daily lives now was unimaginable just two months ago. As we shelter in place and try to enjoy some aspects of our previous lives, such as restaurant food and entertainment, shopping, it seems an ideal time to check in with Mara Davis. Mara, thank you for joining us via Zoom. It is so great to be here, Lois. Happy quarantine. <laughs> oh, yes, we are happy so long as we are quarantined. I love to think of you as the diva of delicious and Wondered if you had suggestions for us regarding Atlanta area restaurants. How can we partake in our city's diverse offerings of food? Well, I think restaurants, Lois, have done such a phenomenal job of pivoting. I know right now that some restaurants are open, some are still choosing to stick with takeout. And I want to let you know there are ways you can support these restaurants depending on what your comfort level is. I want to start with a great pivot. Now, I've talked about Sun in My Belly before, but they've made national news by turning their restaurant into a general store. So they changed the name for the time being to Sundries in My Belly. You can order their whole menu and get it to go, but you can also buy toilet paper, condiments, local artisan goods, produce. They have a gorgeous produce market. So this is a way that they've pivoted in a way. And, you know, they've taken a significant hit because the majority of their business is catering, but they've gotten very, very creative uh, in, in the area as a neighborhood store. And I think that is just absolutely fantastic. Another restaurant that's done this is Storico Fresco and Forza Storico over on the west side and in Buckhead. Now, they're a general store market of Italian goods, but now they're shipping nationwide. So I think this is great. You can ship a box of meals. Now, I've gotten this kind of gift of, of dinner from somebody. I actually got one at Alon's Bakery, which was fantastic. They're doing great to-go meals. But you can send the Storico Fresco all over the country, whether it's their great lasagna or Pomodoro sauce, uh, olive oils, and, and their special pastas. This is something really, really fantastic. Now, Lois, are you cooking at home? 
Yes, although I'm sure nowhere near as elaborately as you do. Well, the truth is, is my husband, Mike, is really the cook in the family. I am really good at shopping and I'm really good at cleaning. I always say I'm a great orderer. I, I want to mention Pine Street Market. Uh, Rusty Bowers is doing such a great job with this. We ordered a bunch of uh, sausages. Uh, they have a sampler kit that's fantastic. They deliver the meat in 24 hours. It's at your door. They FedEx or they hand deliver it to you. Uh, this is high quality meat. There's been a lot of talk about shortages, processing plans. This is a way uh, for you to order locally. I also really like Spotted Trotter. There's Mitch's Meats, which is in the Roswell Alpharetta area. They are fantastic. Mary, you remain very active on social media. I enjoy seeing your smiling, mask-covered face. <laughs> Only you can convey a, a smile through the mask. What kind of feedback are you getting from followers as well as businesses and restaurants? Well, I think it is a dicey time. I think the majority of the people are really embracing takeout. I think... There is a concern, though, of the restaurant business, and people are are kind of taking a wait-and-see approach. I mean, there have been some things that have hit really hard, like Taqueria del Sol, which was a great takeout favorite and so popular in Atlanta, and they had to shut down because they had a COVID-19 case in their restaurants. They are closed. They have decided to reopening uh, to, to, to do a reopening um, after they've been closed for a couple of weeks. And so they're really trying to play it safe. I think that a lot of the restaurateurs want to make sure that they're not only are, are the diners safe, but they their employees are safe. So some of them have been taking it slow. There have been a couple of new ones that are open, like Nikado is a great example of this. They've been closed, but they have brought in like extreme industry experts to sterilize their entire restaurant. Every surface area, every piece of equipment is clean front and back of the house, and they're going to be reopening for curbside. Um, that's going to be seven days a week from 11 to 9. And you know, they normally never did lunch, and they will be doing takeout lunch, which is pretty exciting for me. Um, I also see Lila Lila, which is a great Italian restaurant. They had just opened a couple of months ago, and their chef, Craig Richards, is doing uh, pasta classes online and selling their pasta kits. So I think there are definitely interesting things that are happening that are really exciting and also aiming to keeping people safe. Oh, that's great to hear. It's hard to believe here we are in May and Mother's Day is upon us. That's such a popular time for families to dine out, brunches, dinners. What are your suggestions for Mother's Day celebrations? Well, I did a promotion a couple of weeks ago with Willie's Taco Box, and I put something on my Instagram at Mara Davis 2000 to nominate people who deserve a taco box. And I brought the same idea to Proof of the Pudding. They are actually, and I'm calling it Mara Loves Moms. And so if you're listening and you know a mom, someone who may be in the healthcare industry, somebody who's a teacher, somebody who's just a stay-at-home mom who's balancing everybody. During this time, we're gonna have a brunch package delivered to you with proof of the pudding. This is just the coolest thing. It's muffins and berry and goat cheese salad and bacon, mimosas and a rose, and it's delivered to your door. Oh. So we're gonna pick, um, five deserving moms to get this delivered to your door. And I think this is just such a great idea. They've, again, proof of the pudding relies so much on big corporate events, catering, and they are pivoting. So this is a really easy way to treat your mom and they deliver it right to your door. So if you go to my Instagram, Mara Davis 2000, you can enter to win. You can get all the details about it. I just think this is the greatest idea. And you know, Lois, a lot of other restaurants are doing this kind of thing as well. I know Alon's, I mentioned them earlier, they're doing it. 
Uh, True Food Kitchen is doing a package. I know Buttermilk Kitchen is doing a package like this. So these brunch restaurants are, are seeing that, you know, you can have the best of brunch delivered to your door. And I think that's it's great and safe. And listen, mom doesn't want to get out of bed or be bothered anyway. She never wanted to go out to brunch. She just wanted to be left alone. <laughs> so do this. <laughs> yeah, who wants to get dressed up and put on makeup when you can be catered to and pampered at home. Exactly. And and, and nobody wants to wear pants anymore. So <laughs> perfect. Mara, so many people whose jobs are dependent upon restaurant work and food are facing bleak circumstances. Who do you know that's helping? And are you aware of other ways we can help? Yes. So a couple of charities that I would always suggest giving to, that is obviously the Atlanta Community Food Bank doing incredible work. Then you've got the Giving Kitchen, which I know you know all about, that helps uh, people who, whether they've been affected with COVID-19 or they've had some sort of hardship in their life, but there are some Atlantans who are doing great things. Mission and Market is doing a meal program every Thursday, free meals to anybody who's unemployed. Uh, this has been put on by executive chef Ian Winslade. I think this is absolutely wonderful. Two Chains uh, did a uh, fed people outside of their restaurant called Escobar. And this is a great thing. And also Hugh Atchison uh, has been working with uh, World Central Kitchen with Jose Andres Foundation. And they've been serving people in Athens. And Stephen Satterfield from Miller Union has been working with Emory Healthcare. And they've been providing meals to healthcare workers, which I think is just amazing. Supporting uh, people who are in need right now, if you have the means, buy the gift cards, uh, look at these restaurants. Some of them have GoFundMe accounts. I know Aria did a big fundraiser for their employees. So it is a weird time. And I think as we go on, Lois, we're going to learn more and find fundraisers and different things that people are doing uh, to keep this business going. Mara, it's fantastic to hear about all of these different initiatives and about the many people who are supporting restaurant workers, food service workers, and people in our community in need. Leave it to you to have the scoops delicious. You are our diva of delicious and princess of pop culture. We'll have to catch up on that the next time. I would love that. And you know, Lois, I, I can't do it alone. I do want to give a big mention to Eater Atlanta. Beth McKibben is doing a fantastic job there. Atlanta Magazine has been covering this beautifully, and same with Atlanta Eats. There have been a lot of people on the front lines covering it media-wise, and I couldn't do it with uh, pulling research from, from those resources, too. Well, stay safe and well, and I look forward to seeing your mask-covered smile on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs> Thanks, Lois. You, too. More information on Mara Davis's suggestions for great food during quarantine is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. After a short break, we'll hear about yoga and meditation during quarantine. This is WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. Along with maintaining good physical health during this time, 
good mental health is essential as well. Mental health professionals are recommending that people take just 15 minutes out of the day to meditate. A regular routine of mindfulness can help us maneuver through these unsettling times. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke via Zoom with Atlanta yoga instructor and artist Eve Brown, who explains here how she first got into the practice of yoga. I've had a long history with yoga. I started practicing in middle school. They actually had a yoga club at the public school I went to, but it wasn't until college that I really kind of got deeper in my practice. When did you realize that you wanted to transition from just practicing yoga to teaching it? Well, I had met my friend's mother who taught yoga at Rikers, and I was really inspired by that. And then it wasn't until after I lost someone really close to me that I decided to deepen my practice. And I saw the power of yoga to help us sit with the difficulties of our lives. And I recognized that it was something that not only could I learn to utilize in my own life, but something that I could give to others. Yeah. I saw that you've completed your 200-hour yoga certification. Congratulations. Thank you. And you're currently working on your 500-hour certification. Yes. What did you learn about the history of yoga in your 200-hour certification? Well, yoga is a really old, ancient art and science. It actually started from this sage Pantanjali, and I might be butchering some Sanskrit there, but he wrote the Yoga Sutras, and that was passed down into what is now modern yoga. And the lineage of yoga that I practice from is from BKS Iyengar, and it's traditionally like the kind of yoga that we practice in the United States is asana, which is the physical postures, and it was traditionally used in order to be able to sit to meditate. So the classes that we take are kind of like a stepping stone to what yoga is really for, which is unifying the self, yoking the self. Yoga means to yoke. To unify. And so historically, that's what it's been used for, to yoke with your inner self, but also to, to unify with the greater self with a capital S. So I know for myself, I've been doing a lot of in-home workouts and in-home yoga for exercise. When did it start to transition from meditation to now exercise that people are using it for? I wouldn't know like the specific time that that started to evolve, but I really think that when yoga came over to the United States, it was kind of like, in order for it to be accepted by people, they purposefully made it this thing that was all about the asanas and like contorting the body to gain popularity. And it seems that when it came to the United States, it was pretty early on about the physical movements. And I think it has a lot to do with the differences between our Western culture and where the roots of yoga come from. And we are a culture that's kind of more oriented towards the outer, the external. And so it's not surprising to me that the physical asanas are the most popular limb of yoga in the United States and probably other Western cultures as well. That's really insightful. Yeah, no, I, I can totally see that. Is there a difference between meditation and yoga or do they go hand in hand? Well, yoga is meditation. Even when you're doing the physical asanas, when you're moving from Tadasana, mountain pose, down into Uttanasana, forward fold, that movement through space is a meditation in itself. And it's a meditation on the unity of the body with the unity of the world around you. And so kind of learning how to slow your practice down and allow the mind to really go down into the body. I remember 
practicing for years and just like moving as quickly through the postures as I could and my mind was still thinking about all of my to-do lists and it was not a moving meditation. It was simply exercise. And at the time, that's what I needed and that's totally fine. But eventually, I think you start to practice and you start to feel the, the subtle sensations and this like awe and wonder when the postures start to become a meditation and you learn how to slow the mind down and release the mind down into the body. And I think that that's when yoga moves from purely physical into the <laughs> vast psycho-spiritual science that it is. What different types of yoga do you teach? I mostly teach, it's inspired by Iyengar lineage yoga, very alignment-based. It's not like the typical vinyasa class, which is a lot of fast, flowy movements. I focus more on alignment and we do a pose, and then we do another pose. And it's become, to me, important that I can offer yoga to anybody. For example, I have lots of injuries in my body, and one of them that kind of shifted my yoga practice was an SI injury. And it kind of demanded me to shift my practice into a more... I want to say therapeutic practice, but it's not yoga therapy, which is a totally different thing. But it is slower and it's more accessible to people who have injury or illness or disability. So Eve, I read that you live with chronic illness, like you were saying, and nervous system and mental agitation. How has yoga helped relieve some of that pain and discomfort for you? Well, yoga, first of all, is just great for the nervous system because often you're crossing the diagonals of the body and that's soothing to the nervous system. You're diaphragmatically breathing. So when you take those deep belly breaths, that moves you into ventral vagal, which is the vagus nerve is a huge part of yoga. And ventral vagal is kind of that state of calm, relaxed. I'm connected to the world. And so that's kind of the physiological part of yoga and the nervous system. But the more metaphysical aspect is that yoga is teaching me how to stop resisting my pain and anxiety and recognize them as integral parts of my being. And I think especially now during this time, Anxiety and pain are going to be parts of our lives, and they don't have to be these things that we have to get rid of. But how can we be more fully with them? And the boundaries and the rhythm created by yoga allow me to move beneath my pain into a space that is connected and eternal and untouched by the fluctuations of the external world. I don't know if I just got like crate like too out <laughs> metaphysical, but that that's like the best way that I can explain it. No, I think that was beautifully put, really. You know, it's hard to put into words sometimes exactly what we're feeling, and especially when we're trying to heal our physical bodies and our mental health, how to really put that into words. So I think you said that beautifully. And I also think that it's something that probably everyone has experienced on some level when you go to a yoga class and you leave and you feel these things that are kind of indescribable and you feel more grounded and connected. And that is the, that is the like metaphysical aspect of yoga that I think even finds its way into the yoga classes that feel a little more like they're about the exercise. Would you say yoga is a practice that's accessible for all body types and experience levels? Absolutely. I mean, the basic premise of yoga is that it is for any body. And the way that it's taught in a lot of classes here, I wouldn't say that it is accessible to everyone. But yoga, not the classes and the way that people are choosing to teach it, but the core principles of yoga don't discriminate. They're there for everyone. And given the experiences that I've had, it feels right to me to find 
out how to teach that core principle of yoga that you don't have to have the same body that everyone else has in order to practice and you can have injuries illness and disability and still receive the same benefits of yoga with people sheltering in place due to covid-19 how have you continued to teach yoga so i teach a thursday evening class through nirvana which is a studio that i was teaching at in real life before covid happened i also teach some private classes and i've been looking for opportunities to share yoga in a more financially accessible way and a friend of mine started an organization called My Illegal Body that I taught a donation class through and I'm hoping to teach some more through that. How have you adjusted the way that you teach virtually? Oh, that has been such an experiment, especially given the way that I teach being inspired by the Iyengar lineage uses a lot a lot of props. And I don't have the expectation that every single person will have all of the yoga props at home. So I've had to get really creative with using different things at home rather than the official yoga props. It's been a real great way to improve my verbal cues and being really direct and exact with my language because... I'm not next to my students. Sometimes I can't even see my students and I have to use my language as best I can to communicate what I'm trying to get them to feel or experience in their bodies. Do you have any mentors or people that you look to to help you with this? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Jessica von Schlichten, who is the owner of Mystic Lotus, and she's my current teacher. I'm training with her for my 500 hour, is a huge inspiration and teaches me so much all the time. Also, her teacher, Lala Schwartz, who does amazing things for back care and pelvic imbalances, and also Matthew Sanford. He's kind of the person that. Jessica learned a lot about adaptive yoga through and who I'm also learning through vicariously. So yes, I have, I mean, there's, there's an endless amount of teachers that continue to inspire me, but those are the three main ones right now. What have the responses been like from your participants? I think that it is a combination of everyone getting used to this new space but also so much gratitude to be able to still practice, especially during this time. And I think that we all cope in whatever way we need to. And sometimes yoga is not what you need to cope, but it's also an incredible tool during this time. And I think that people have been really happy that they can still keep learning and practicing and even having some semblance of community when they come to class and see that there's other people in their little boxes there too. Atlanta yoga instructor and artist Eve Brown speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans. You can find more information about Eve's virtual demonstrations on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. Today is Cinco de Mayo, and though people in Mexico think of it as a minor holiday in the U.S., May 5th is a major celebration of food and drink. On City Lights now, we're going to celebrate in our favorite way with some mariachi music. In college a few years ago, two classically trained music students, Alejandro Cifuentes and Jonathan Urizar, created Mariachi's Buos de Oro. That translates as the Golden Owl Mariachis, a nod to their school mascot at Kennesaw State. Here, Alejandro Cifuentes tells us why he started the band. 
one of the things that inspired me to start playing mariachi music was was love. So I, oh. yeah, I was in very much in love with a girl, and I wanted to serenade her. Uh, so I was like, well, there's I love mariachi music, so I'm gonna you know talk to a couple of my friends here and just make our own and so I contacted Jonathan here and also my friend Michael Pena who plays trumpet and it was Jonathan on violin Michael on trumpet and then myself on guitar and singing and we went up on her birthday and sang happy birthday or las mañanitas as as we we call it in, in Mexico and yeah she really enjoyed it and ever since then we we kept on having mariachi in our lives it's also maybe worth noting that it's a pretty traditional thing that happens to serenade your loved one. Uh, many people hire mariachi bands to come and uh, show show up to your loved one's window very, very early in the morning, oh. usually 5, 6, 7 a.m. sometimes. And it's a surprise to everyone, uh, or rather to your loved one. Everyone else is usually in on it. Would you tell us about the name of your group? The name of our group is Mariachi Búhos de Oro. Uh, translated literally from Spanish, that means the golden owls, all right? And we decided to name it the golden owls because of the school that we, we all went to, which is Kennesaw State University, in honor of, of our mascot, Scrappy, I think is his name, <laughs> right? That's right? And so that's that's where the name came from, truthfully. Why is it important for you to keep mariachi music alive? I think especially in the region of the country in which we live, it's it's especially important because it almost doesn't exist on this half of the country. There there are mariachi bands other than ours in Georgia. There are a handful, but uh, it's got a much wider reach in the western United States. There are programs in the West, in the public schools, that actually teach mariachi to young students. And, really? Uh, where oh, th- yeah. <laughs> then that's very much not the case here. And so it's, it's especially important for us to keep this tradition alive. And here. the repertoire is so marvelous. Mm-hmm. You perform works by mariachi composer Jose Alfredo Jimenez. Would you talk about the significance of Jimenez in Mexican music and culture? Sure. So, you know, Jose Alfredo Jimenez was probably one of the main reasons that I started doing mariachi and fell in love with with the music itself. He was the most prolific uh, songwriter in Mexico up until now. If you go to, to a mariachi concert, there's probably a 30, 50% chance is a song you're listening to was written by him, especially if it's a love song. But I think that he really helped carry mariachi music from not only being recognized as kind of a rural uh, ranchero sort of sort of feeling in, in, in its essence to being more romantic and a little deeper, having like uh, more of like, what's the meaning of life? Hmm. Uh, we have a few of Jimenez's compositions, which you've recorded. Would you tell us about his song, Si Nos Dejan? Okay, Si Nos Dejan is one of our most popularly requested songs. It's a, it's a love song about uh, forbidden love. The opening of the song is very catchy. I think a lot of people hear it, and it, it, it's one of those earworms. I think they just get stuck, <laughs> just it's stuck with you all day. Uh, and I think love is a, it's a universal theme that anyone can relate to, regardless of the genre of music you're listening to. Si nos dejan, nos vamos a a vivir a un mundo nuevo Yo creo podemos ver el nuevo amanecer de un nuevo día Yo pienso que tú y yo podemos ser felices todavía And you perform another of Jose Alfredo Jimenez love songs, Paloma Querida. That's correct, yeah. yeah. Paloma Querida is um, one of his earlier songs. I actually think it's 
he wrote it before Si Nos Dejan. And it's one of my favorite songs because he wrote this song in a way to propose to his wife. Um, it's an incredible story. Preserves that like ranchero feel. It's it's kind of like music from from the countryside of Mexico. It's very folk sounding. Uh, a lot of the the melodies is slow and in thirds usually, um, and usually in, in three four time and pretty pretty so yeah it's very waltzy so there's there's a lilt exactly yeah. and you know you know you never it never goes too fast. It's more about the story that it's telling. Jonathan, you are the concertmaster of the DeKalb Symphony Orchestra. That's correct. You've had a wide range of experience performing with other ensembles and orchestras. You have played with the likes of Robert Spano and David Kusharan, as well as Charlie Daniels, I read. As a soloist, how do you approach playing such different styles? I think classical music and just all the wide ranges of music I've been fortunate enough to be a part of have given me a wide range of flexibility in the way I approach mariachi music. It's a very charismatic style of music, and you have to sort of bring a, a certain type of character to it. Uh, you have to be almost in your audience's face a little bit with, with your emotions because it's such a dramatic style and genre of music. You have to kind of bring a certain type of, of a almost like a, a Spanish bullfighter sometimes mm-hmm. when, I, when I think Passion. of the character, just very passionate Passion music. and, and, and I, no self-restraint. I should also mention my parents are from Honduras and Guatemala, so mariachi music isn't actually any, anything that I grew up listening to. But I think it was my my freshman year of college, maybe before I actually listened to anything in depth. And so it's been a completely unique challenge for me to interpret this music, but it's been it's such a blast to, to get to do it. It's That's wonderful. Alejandro, you also play the vihuela. How would you describe the instrument? It's beautiful to look at. Yeah, definitely. So the vihuela looks very similar to a guitar, but shrunk a little bit, kind of like if you put it in the dryer. Um, not, <laughs> not Don't try that. No. <laughs> uh, not quite as small as a ukulele, though, somewhere in between. And the back of the vihuela is hunched a little bit, kind of like as if it were pregnant. That's kind of have to like to think about it. Uh, it also has five strings instead of six like the guitar does. Um, and it's tuned almost exactly as the guitar, except with the low, without the low E string. Um, something interesting about it too is that the A, D, and G strings are up an octave from the regular guitar. So that makes it really nice and bright and just kind of live sounding. Sometimes it's a little too much of it by itself, um, but it lets it resonate against the trumpets and all the other uh, the other instruments because there's only two people playing rhythm in most mariachi. Sometimes, sometimes it's just me. Most of the time, actually, it's just me. It's a very tricky instrument. I never imagined that the, it would be as difficult as it is. I'm like, oh, it's, it's a little ukulele. Like, it's smaller than the guitar. How hard can it be? But, mm. <laughs> you know, believe me, there's, there's a, a wide range of, of, of techniques that you can do on that instrument that you can't do on guitar. And it's a complete departure from your section of, <laughs> of the <course>. orchestra. To, <laughs> it's not even in the orchestra, but to go to a pluck string instrument from a woodwind is, yeah. is quite a departure. Exactly. Luckily, I, I did play guitar before playing, uh, even before playing oboe, actually. You're going to play a song for us. Would you tell us about Bikina? 
it's written in one of the subgenres of mariachi music called uh, horopo, and it's got a very upbeat feel to the to the song. It resonates with a lot of people. Every every time we start playing this, the very beginning of of this song. Everyone's light, eyes light up, it seems. <laughs> it's one of the most popular and definitely most requested songs we get. Alejandro Cifuentes on Vihuela and violinist Jonathan Urizar of Mariachi's Bujos de Oro. There's a link to their band on our website at wabe.org slash city lights get ready for a grilling ahead on wabe atlanta with warmer weather now in atlanta maybe you've been cooking outdoors more often in the summer of 2018, I spoke with cookbook author and former New York Times writer Mark Bittman about his book, How to Grill Everything. Bittman wrote that grilling is the most primitive method of cooking. So I asked him why people find it so daunting. Well, we find many primitive things daunting. I think we've come so far from the lives of our great ancestors. But um, grilling is cooking over open fire for the most part. And um, people are used to stoves. They're used to heat that's easy to control. They're used to contained environments. So the idea of building a fire, whether it's out of charcoal or wood, is is an intimidating one to many people, which I think is why gas grills have become more popular than other grills. But gas grills have taken all the really should have by now and will eventually take all the fear and uncertainty out of grilling. And some um, diehards would argue that they've taken all the fun out of grilling, too. I wouldn't argue that. Yeah, I think I, gas grills are great. So. I like that you like that. It is very <laughs> validating. And, and we'll get to that because you cover it thoroughly yeah. in the new book. There are sentimental memories for you with grilling. As a boy, it was something available to you, only visiting your cousins in the suburbs. Why is it that people should not feel intimidated about grilling in a small urban area? The first thing I did when I bought my first house in 1979 in New Haven, which had a, a... a terrace that was probably six by three or maybe eight by four um, was put a grill on it. And um, well, that was so much fun to just walk through the apartment, open that little porch door, go out there, build the fire, and then walk back and forth a hundred times and grill stuff. Look, we have self-contained kitchens that in which you can do anything. And grilling is easily mimicked much of grilling is easily mimicked by our ovens and our broilers and grill pans on top of the stove and so on. I think you should only grill if you think it's fun. And people do think grilling is fun. I'm not saying you can't be a good cook without grilling. You can. Um, but most people like the taste of really, really well-browned food or food that's cooked with some smoke or wood taste. And um, you're not going to get that in, inside. And as long as you think it's worth it, it is worth it. I mean, you can set up a grill almost anywhere. And, you know, when I was, I grew up in Manhattan. When I was growing up, there were, there really were, at least in my neighborhood, there were no grills. But now in every neighborhood, everybody who has a terrace has a grill on it. And there are lots and lots of rooftop grills. And no one builds a new building without selling their apartments based on the fact that there's grilling space available. Um, so it's become much more common even there. Common and popular. Um, when I read that about your cousins and how you loved leaving Manhattan to experience grilled food, I thought about some friends we had in Chicago where my husband and I grew up. They had this fabulous apartment on the lakefront in a historic building, and 
when we asked them why they were selling it, the answer was because we like to grill. <laughs> it's, it's pretty. They were moving to the suburbs. Just to grill. To grill. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's that's taking things seriously. One need not do that anymore. You have said that pretty much everything, again, a keyword for you, can be cooked on the grill, even baking a cake or making pasta. How does baking work on a grill? It works because we most of the grilling that we do now is covered grilling. Um, and if you think of what an oven is, it's a heat so- source in a closed environment, and that's what we've done with grills. So especially on a gas grill where you can turn on a flame on one side and leave the other side not cold but but heated as if it were an oven, you can bake in there. And you can bake in there and you can get some extra flavor, by, especially in a gas grill, but obviously over charcoal or wood, you can get some extra flavor by putting some sticks or other other pieces of wood in a gas grill. In other words, building a tiny fire on top of the grates. And then you effectively are mimicking the taste of a wood grill in a gas grill. And if you do cornbread, for example, in that environment, it is really, really good. Mm -hmm. I want to say one thing about this. This is a big book, 250 recipes, 750 variations approximately. And, um, it's not how to grill everything, obviously, but it's how to grill many, many things. And and I think they're all worth, worth grilling, but I don't think that they're all worth breaking out the grill for. Ah. So my idea was, once you've got the grill on, what can you do? And because I think that one of the problems with grilling is running back and forth to the kitchen. And to the extent that you can stay out there and do many different things on the grill, I think that makes it much more fun and much more social and much more luxurious and so on. So I don't think I would turn on the grill in order to make dessert (laughs) or in order to make bread. But once you're turning on the grill in order to grill vegetables or fish or meat or whatever – then thinking about doing some bread or some dessert or some appetizers or side dishes, whatever, becomes much more practical and keeps you from having to turn on the oven so or the stove or whatever. So that's kind of my way of thinking about this. The recipes and how to grill everything list the main ingredients and step-by-step directions, pretty standard for any cookbook. And each recipe is followed by three variations, which is a signature of yours. Greatly appreciated by your many readers. How did you first start including those variations, Mark? You know, my first book was called Fish, and there were variations in there. And I think, first of all, I didn't invent that style. There were other people, some of them friends of mine, who did that before I did But I have stuck with it, and I really think it's the right way to do things because it's much easier to say, okay, I know how to cook this recipe with parsley and shallot and vinegar. Here it is with uh, cilantro and lime and chili and mint. And um, the difference between those two things is just flavor. It's not technique. So to create a whole new recipe out of that really muddies the waters, whereas to say – Okay, you know how to grill chicken with rosemary and lemon. Here's how to grill chicken with chimichurri or whatever. It's the same except for a couple of minor tweaks. That has become something of a signature, but I'll defend it to my death. I think it really makes sense. It's new, or in the last only the last couple of books, that we've limited the variations to three because if you look at the original How to Cook Everything, there, I think there are, are recipes with literally 17 variations. And then it gets a little bit of a mess. So we're not doing that anymore. You're up there with Bach. I mean, <laughs> Goldberg variations, yeah, got yeah. the Bittman variations. The Bittman variations. variations. Thank you very much. Nice. I'll remember that. I think that approach is part of your appeal. You've reiterated making food accessible, that this has been a career-long goal of yours. And I remember how welcoming I found the minimalist. Because of the accessibility, do you attribute that to the fact that you do not have 
formal culinary training? Well, I mean, the easy answer is that, yeah, yes, absolutely. But I can't explain it because if I, you know, most of the chefs I know know full well that this is the way to cook, that you learn a pattern, a technique, a dish, and then you spin things off of that. Um, I think. I think that these books, I think my books are good because I was a journalist before I was a cookbook author. And um, I know how to ask questions. I know, you know, modesty aside, I know how to write. I understand the language pretty well and know how to use it. And I think those are, these are books. I mean, some people think cookbooks are not actual books, but they are written and they are the written word. And they may be instruction manuals. They're closer to instruction manuals than they are to novels for sure. But if they're not clear and concise and understandable, then they're failures. The result is that it is not intimidating for people to take on one of your recipes. Well, that I would say is for sure because I'm an, I'm an amateur because I can't do complicated or I won't do complicated recipes. So why would I ask my readers to do complicated recipes? Cookbook author and former New York Times writer Mark Bittman. His 2018 book is called How to Grill Everything. You've been listening to City Lights, a celebration of the arts and the ways in which we express ourselves creatively. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. with Atlanta's hometown Broadway star Shuler Hensley and Angela Farr Schiller of the ArtsBridge Foundation. They'll talk about nurturing Georgia students in musical theater ahead of the annual Schuler Awards. Our producers are Ryan McFadden and Summer Evans. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Today's show and the City Lights archives are at wabe.org slash citylights. And do check out our new podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.